everybody. Welcome back to the Present Process Podcast, where we talk about plays from playwrights that you may or may not have heard of and illuminate the process of writing. This week, we're talking to Vincent Terrell Durham about his play Polar Bears, Black Boys, and Prairie-Fringed Orchids. It's a really great conversation. I'm really glad I got to have it, and I highly recommend you give the play a read before listening, but you don't have to. This episode may contain some strong language and other adult themes, and you can always find an in-depth content warning in the description. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, today, we're going to be talking to Vincent Terrell Durham about his play Polar Bears, Black Boys, and Prairie-Fringed Orchids. Uh, but just before we get into it, I like to uh, have the playwright sort of introduce themselves, talk about what they're about. So I'm wondering, who are you? Who is Vincent? Uh, and sort of where are you from? And how would you describe your role in theater? Sure. Uh, that is such a large question of who I am. <laughs> And I spent some time thinking on that, you know, and I think the best answer is I am Barbara's son. That's who <laughs> I am. I am so much of who my mother raised that uh, I think that's a great way to identify myself. And uh, one thing my mother always said is that um, I get along with everybody. And I remember the day that she said that, and that has been instilled in me since the moment she spoke it. So yeah, I'm Barbara's son. And uh, my role in, in in the theater is playwright. I love that title. That's the only thing I wish to be. I don't wish to be a director or an actor, casting person. I love being a playwright. I love that title. Uh, what do you What do you really love about being a playwright? Like, what does it give you that you don't think the other roles would? It gives me the opportunity to put my voice in things <laughs> that I think about all day long into someone else's mouth and I don't always have to take responsibility for it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they're out on stage, you know, they are the first ones who are going to feel the reception or the rejection from those lines, you know, and I think ultimately it will get back to me, you know, even, you know, praise or non-praise, but yeah, it's just, it's just a safer place sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and then where are you currently based right now? I am uh, in wonderful Los Angeles, mm. the place that I was supposed to be born. I was born in Binghamton, New York, upstate New York. Uh, grew up all my, ooh, I think I left and I was 21 years old. And when I discovered Los Angeles, I was like, wow, this is this is where I was supposed to be born. I love L.A. Uh, what sort of theater do you find yourself typically working with when you're writing? So like that can be a genre or common themes or things that stretch across your work, but is there a commonality between any of them? You know what? I think most likely it's race in America are are my themes, but um, I like to say that I just tell stories. So whatever I think is going to entertain me, and ultimately entertain other people, that's what comes out. You know, I, I, I'm really like a storyteller more than anything else. So if I think it's going to be interesting, if I think people are going to laugh, if I think people are going to feel, um, it starts to go down on paper. Uh, I usually find that that's a pretty common answer. Like, And that's a good answer because I feel like if you're not writing things that people – that doesn't entertain you and doesn't make immediately make you interested, it's like why why would this entertain anybody else? Absolutely. So talking about uh, your play, 
polar bears, black boys, and prairie fringed orchids, uh, which immediately when I just read that title for the first time, I was like, oh, I bet this one's going to be interesting. And I was excited. <laughs> but it's sort of a, when I was reading it, I'm a huge Albie fan, and I immediately got sort of feelings of Albie, right? It's sort of this living room-esque play, sort of a cocktail party, but you're bringing it, you're bringing that forward, right? So it feels very now. Um, but you have a, uh, Peter and Molly Castle are uh, hosting a cocktail party um, so that Molly can give um, these old rent party posters to uh, a black activist friend of hers. Um, and uh, sort of the night evolves from there. And I'm just wondering, uh, is there any other way that you would describe your play um, just as the playwright? Sure. And you described it well. It's it's that cocktail party play. That's what I sat down to write. I always wanted to write one. Um, I always say that it is God of Carnage meets All in the Family. <laughs> That's my way of describing the play. It's as easy as I can. I'm trying to remember, do you is it do you have somebody vomit in the play? Am I, am I <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. But... <laughs> I don't. No, no, no. I don't, I don't want to match God of Carnage, but I just love God of Carnage so oh. much just because, you know, there's a couple that don't know each other. They get stuck in a room together and they just talk and mm -hmm. things come out. And, you know, I, I just love that. I love having characters just talk. Well, in God of Carnage, too, they already have sort of a reason for animosity, right. right? So they're coming in based on conflict. Um, and yours doesn't have that necessarily, but I feel like you inject that into the play. Like there's um, some conflict already just because uh, race is like a big part of the play, right? So that's already present. Like the audiences from the beginning, right? They're, it's in their mind that that's going to be a central theme. And so I think they're ready for conflict to come from there. And so I think it operates in kind of the same way. Right, right. And also, I think um, all of these characters, they walk into this room with assumptions, you know, like Tom has all of these assumptions. Like when he first sees Shamika, he says, oh, this is my sister girl. We're going to get along fine. And that assumption is is just wrong. <laughs> you know, I, I just really um, I lean into what people assume just by looking at another character and I allow them to be wrong. Well, or even you have like the assumptions that uh, Shamika makes about Peter, right? Where he keeps on connecting with her on literature and music and things. And she's like, there's no way he has to be like, this can't be real. And then it turns out right. that he actually is pretty genuine. Like these are right. things that he likes. Exactly. And so yeah. I love, I love the way that this script plays with those sort of expectations. And I think that's, this was when I was reading through submissions. Um, this was the first play. I sort of like read through half of the play at the beginning and then I start organizing them. Uh, but this one, I read all the way through cause I couldn't stop. And I was, <laughs> I loved it so much. Oh, and so you. that's why I knew I had to feature it. Right. Uh, um, so sort of, uh, still talking about the play, um, obviously this feels a little concerning the subject matter. This feels like a bit of a loaded question, but, um, was there a personal or global event in your life that sort of inspired the impetus like that? Let the story come out. Uh, on yeah, absolutely. Side? Um, I remember exactly what was going on. Like I belong to a, uh, a theater program, you know, we write 10 minute plays, from prompts over four days, 
we have four days to write a 10 minute play. And George Floyd, I'm sorry, uh, Philando Castile had just been murdered. And I believe we were writing about, I don't know, let's just say, oh no, a Christmas Carol or whatever, you know? <laughs> and it's like, we are in the theater. We're here to tell stories and all of this stuff is happening out in the world and we're not bringing it into the theater. So that that was what, what hit me. It was, it was like, I can't write anything about Christmas right now or whatever the prompt was, you know, mm-hmm. like we have stuff going on out in the world that we need to bring to the theater. We need to talk, tell these stories in the theater. So do you feel like theater is like the primary role of theater is to respond to the current moment? I, I believe that. Yes. And and to break down walls and to bring, bring stories to people who don't necessarily have to experience those stories. You know, some of the most powerful theater that I've seen probably didn't always relate to the person next to me or even relate to myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, I remember the first time I saw angels in America that was like, like I could relate to that, but I didn't know if the person next to me could relate to it. And that's what that was for. You know, that was to, to, to say, Hey, look at my story. I need you to feel what I'm feeling. I need you to experience what I'm experiencing. And also theater is great for just not even what's going on stage, but just, I love sitting next to someone that I don't know. And then during intermission, you get to know them. (laughs) <laughs> and you know it brings people together i you know yeah it's it's like what the it's what a movie theater can't do because you don't have right there is no intermission there's really no there's a lot more anonymity in a movie theater um you kind of go in you sit in a dark room there are people around but you don't feel like you're connecting with them right right um, yeah. but i feel like right in a theater you are hyper aware as an audience member that you are with other people um, absolutely i love that feeling and um yeah, my I don't know if my seat partners appreciate it, but I'm talking to you during intermission. We're talking, you know. Well, yeah, and even I think that there's a uh, there's a precedent for that sort of thing a little bit. Um, I feel like we right there's there was a Western tradition for a while where you don't you can't say anything, right? Mm. The theaters are very you got a the fourth walls there, but now I feel right. like we're moving away from that again, and we're moving back to. Sort of even the element Shakespeare was writing in where everybody was talking during the play anyways, right? It was just kind of an open discussion and people weren't always necessarily paying attention. But who knows? Who knows where we're moving forward to? <laughs> uh, uh, and I think the what your play does really well in that regard is your characters are not sort of binary in terms of morality or beliefs, right? You can't – it's hard to put them all into a box, Um and so I really, really love that you open up opportunities for audience members to discuss that sort of thing so they can say, well, I agree with what this character did, and another person can disagree with that entirely. And I feel like most of those responses are valid. Absolutely. Yeah, that's um, what I might be jumping on one of your questions, but that's one of the things I'm proudest about the play. <laughs> you know, it's like at any given moment, I think an audience member will agree with Molly at some point. Mm-hmm. They will agree with Peter at some point, Jaquan, Shamika, the whole gamut of people, uh, all, all of the characters. So do you, when you were writing, did you see yourself at any, like, did you see yourself, the playwright, in 
all of those characters at one point? Did that help you to write them? You know, I can't say that I saw myself in all of the characters. I identified myself. I, mm -hmm. you know, I, I I know that sounds like the same thing, <laughs> <laughs> but but somehow it's not. Like you know, like there are things that I identified, but that wasn't necessarily me. Like right. just because I can understand, it doesn't mean that it's me. So yeah, the the character that I most identified with is Jaquan. You know, his, mm. his quietness and actually, you know, instead of talking, he just holds it in until he can't hold it in anymore, <laughs> and then it erupts. You know, it's like, yeah. Uh, no, I think that's a good distinction because I think. Right. When we're talking about representation and things like that, um, you obviously want to have media that you like that you go, oh, I can represent myself in that character and I can feel inspired by that. But also that's different from understanding that they're like these characters are made up of multitudes and you can identify with one part of a character while not identifying with the rest. And so I think those are two separate distinctions. Yes. Along with that, uh because it sort of feeds into it, like what sort of are the primary questions that you want your audience to grapple with? You know, um, there's so many things. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many things in this play for the audience to leave and talk about. I, I just want the audience to really sit and ponder. I, I'm trying to get this out correctly. Mm -hmm. like, Like what can they do to to break down walls and because like, you know, they always say like America is a big melting pot, but it isn't a big melting <laughs> pot. We are just, we are like siloed, you know? And yeah, you know, that's one of the things I just want is people to just break down walls and say like, how can I, you know, approach a person and have a discussion with them just on face value without assuming anything on this person the moment I meet them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of things in this play to talk about. There are a lot of things in this play to talk about. And I think that's, that's really important. Like I really love, I love the plays where I can talk about it either over a drink right afterwards with someone or on the drive home with my partner, right? Like there has to be some sort of, that goes beyond quality of the play. Like, right. You can always talk about, did you think the play was good or bad? Sure. Like, right. That's always present. But I think questions of like, right, because you raise the question of what what can we do to connect with people like and how do we connect with people? I feel like that's kind of a primary question of the play because we all have these assumptions. Right. And so I feel like most of your characters are constantly in conflict with their own assumptions, which is kind of a fun like idea to have in a play. Right. Absolutely. And the other thing, and I probably, I hope I answered your question. Okay. <laughs> I feel I did not answer it well, but so I'm going to try to answer it again. The other thing is uh, to like, I want people to put themselves in the other person's shoes because like in this play, the first part of this play, they are talking in hypotheticals, you know, especially the main part about losing a child to gun violence. They're all talking in hypotheticals. And it's not until Rita comes in who has actually experienced this that it's real, you know? And so I think, and I, I know I'm guilty of it often is like, I know what I would do in a situation, but I don't really know because until that situation happens, you know, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And to have these characters, these characters are just like 
standing at standing their ground and their this is what I would do. There's like no leeway. And I think people have to consider like, you know what, maybe I need to be a little more flexible because I really don't know what I would do. Well, and even Tom represents that at the end because he's the one, right, who brings in the gun. And he's like, I would do this in this situation, right? If you were being attacked by a cop, I would kill him, right? He says, right. Um, and then at the end, right, the gun is ultimately the thing that leads to Jaquan's uh, murder, right? right like, right, right. And so it, it sort of draws upon itself. So I think that is, I think you're totally right. I think that's a primary question here is like, what would you say about this play that you are most proud of? Going back again, that, you know, I have all of these points of views that the audience can relate to. And they're not, and and I have no villain. I don't think I have a villain in this play. I think everyone at some moment has a valid voice, you mm -hmm. know? And I think at any moment, an audience member will relate to a certain person. And I think even in the talkbacks that I've had from stage readings, I often assume that this person is going to come up to me and say, I identified at this moment with that person. And my assumption is always wrong, you know? And I, I love that, you know, because I'm guilty of doing what I'm trying to write in the play. <laughs> I actually had an experience. Uh, we had a stage reading in uh, Utah Shakespeare Festival. And I was being hosted and uh, taken care of by these two lovely people, um, just just wonderful people. And they had no idea what the play was about. And the first read through that we had, the wife had to leave. And I'm like, I don't know why she left, you know, <laughs> and I was feeling a little something, you know, because playwrights notice everything. Mm -hmm. So she left and her husband stayed. And then later when we were having dinner, she expressed to me why she left. And she left because her son had been killed by a police officer. Hmm. And then I learned from her husband that he used to be a police officer. So I oh, immediately wow. assumed that these people are going to hate my play. <laughs> but they actually, you know, they, they said that the play actually brought them some healing. Hmm. And they were glad to have experienced it. I feel like that's the greatest gift you could receive as a, a playwright, right? Is that, um, right, just the confirmation that it resonated with someone, right? Absolutely, yeah. Wow, that's almost like a play right there, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, wow. Uh, so when you're going about writing this beast, right, because you have uh, your characters are all very complex, um, I think it's right. It's both easier and more difficult because you're, it's all in the same setting. It's like a neat, I think it's like probably like 60 to 90 minutes all in one spot. Um, uh, how did you initially start writing it? Like what was your process for letting ideas come in and then organizing them if you did it all? Sure. Um, my process is always the same just to be idle. I love idle time. Just, just, some people would call it lazy, <laughs> but really just to be still and just to do nothing and allow the process to start in my head. And I think a lot of people outline, physically outline, but that doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. And so outlining for me is just to lay around, 
and just do nothing. And that's when these people start forming inside my head. And I think I think that's I think that's pretty common. I, there's a lot of um, right. I've always experienced that ideas come when I'm bored, right? When I just leave my mind to think. So I would write when I was in college. I would write a lot of poems in class because I would be drifting away, or like you have ideas while you're driving and you're not listening to music and things like that. So do do you like specifically set a time where you just like don't you just kind of wait in some alone time no it just you know it just you're right i try to be idle a lot no (laughs) um you know one of the greatest times i have is when i go for my bike ride i usually ride um 20 miles a day Mm -hmm. and you know i don't have headphones on uh i have a bike path and there's no traffic so i don't really have to be alert so just riding and just being free and just my mind is really open when I'm on my bicycle. So a lot of things are just flowing in there. You can't turn off your mind. That's for sure. So <laughs> yeah, it, it's just, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's a difficult thing for writers or just creatives in general is the ability to allow the ideas to come freely. I think that's kind of almost like a learned skill it's kind of a muscle you have to practice because it's so easy to get distracted Um, absolutely and and life interferes with that as well because like you know like right now i need to work a nine to five and Mm -hmm. you know that nine to five sometimes it comes home with you and so if that nine to five is in your head that does not have leave room for a play to pop in there or character to pop in or dialogue to pop in so when you started getting these initial ideas, what was the first thing you sort of focused on um, that you really wanted to iron out first before anything else? You know, I just needed, um, I knew I wanted to start with Molly and Peter. I knew I wanted them to have the first voice and I needed to hear their first interaction, you know? And once that came, I knew they just would keep talking. And I knew I wanted them to have this, this couple's banter, you know, it's like they're not mad at each other, but they're maybe tired of each other, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know? And so like, yeah, that's that I, I wanted that to come first. So I just try to open my mind to let, let this couple talk to me, you know, because I haven't been a couple in forever. So I don't know what couples even talk about <laughs> anymore. So, yeah, once they started talking and doing their couple thing that that helped me uh, open the door to everybody else. Well, and it's even it represents that sort of because I, I even think it it shows up in the play, if I'm remembering correctly, where couples, right, when they get to a point in the relationship can sort of anticipate what the other one is going to say. You, I think you specifically have that, right, because they they rehash old arguments and that you can't uh, when you're being uh, when you're having a discussion with someone that you're not that intimate with, you can pull out some old tricks, right? Oh. But couples have seen all the tricks in the book. And so the conversation is very different. And I right. think you, right, you have that. A- absolutely. Yeah, yeah. When Molly and Peter are talking, she's she's held some stuff back. Okay, remember <laughs> this argument from three months ago or whenever ago? Here, bam, you know, back <laughs> at you. Yeah. Right. You have that down right you have that initial scene down and then did you start outlining or did you sort of let the process flow flow sort of freely uh from there with characters coming in and the conversation going the latter part yeah i find outlining just it stalls me you know because like that's 
that's a whole process. Instead of outlining, I could be writing what these people are actually going to say and actually do. So once once they start talking, it just keeps going. You know, I, I don't know if I'm weird or not, but I grew up with a family really surrounded by women. And my family of women just talked and talked and talked and talked. <laughs> and it was actually a great learning experience because I learned how people talk. And so that that shows up in a lot of my writing. Once I get the characters talking, I'm able to just keep going. Yeah. And I think I, I think maybe it might be for for plays that have a lot of dialogue, uh, it's hard to outline that because it's hard to outline a conversation, I think, um, because there's a lot of subtext going on. So I think like for something like Shakespeare, right, you can outline it pretty easily because you say this event happens mm -hmm. and then that causes this event ha to happen. Right. I think in the conversation you have, especially when you have what it's like at one point was it six characters on stage at the same time, all engaging in the same conversation. There's multiple different threads, right. That you just have to, I think it's better to feel out in an improvised moment, right. than trying to figure it out on paper. Cause then I think you get a little bit lost in the details. Right. Absolutely. I agree. Just let them go. Just go. Let's go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and as long as you feel the characters and you sort of understand them on a, on like a sort of a base level, I think they can sort of speak for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I trust my characters will tell me what they want to say. Uh, so then how do you, when you're writing out those characters, how do you go about writing characters that you may not always agree with? Right. So you have these characters that you identify with maybe at one point or another, but you, they may move into something that you don't identify with. Like, how do you grapple with that? Sure. You know, I, I really trust, again, I trust my characters. And that's something that I try to be aware of. Like, I I try not to edit my characters ever. Like, if they're, if they're going to say that, I have to let them say it, you know, even if it's hard. Because there's some hard things that Peter says mm -hmm. in this play. Like, but I got to let him say it, you know? That's what he wants to say. I got to let him say it. You know, I can't soften it up. And uh, I think there are some times that I've tried to do that. Like when you're trying to get produced, you're trying to get into the mind of the artistic director. Why didn't they produce my play? <laughs> so then you start questioning, okay, maybe I did say, have my character say something that's just too harsh. And then you go back and say, you know what? That's 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 them. I, I, I can't censor what they're going to say. Well, and then ultimately the answer to the artistic director question is, it's just a gamble, right? Because there's so many, it's not even that there's like, there's at least a hundred percent more amazing plays than there are plots to produce them. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's all just about what is like the theater looking for at any given moment. And it's just, it's like, ultimately you just don't know. Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, you said earlier that you, there's not a villain in the play, right? So you have all these right characters that are, at one point or another, they might be antagonizing someone else, but they're not like inherently, there's no like bad, there's no 100% bad people, right, right, in this play. I really think that does come across. And I think you did, I think you accomplished that well. So rolling through the play towards the end, when did you have it in your mind that it was going to end with another murder by a police officer? You know what? There's There's been a couple of endings. I knew I wanted it to 
be tragic. I, I needed the audience to feel a loss. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know whose loss I wanted them to feel. There was one one draft where I had um, Peter and Molly's son dying. Mm. And then ultimately, you know, I settled with Elijah. I'm, I'm sorry, with um, Jaquan. Jaquan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know what? I just wanted the audience uh, to feel a loss because, um, again, the catalyst of the play was um, Philando Castile's murder. And even though we watched that, I believe his fiance had FaceTimed that live and we watched it. I think people met Philando Castile at the moment of his death. And I think that's what happens with a lot of these videos. We're meeting this person at the moment of their death. So we don't know who they are previously. So I wanted the audience to spend 80 minutes with Jaquan, getting to know Jaquan and having some kind of connection with Jaquan and then ultimately losing him to police violence. So they could just just feel that even more. I think I think that's a really profound thing that I don't think I've ever like maybe I've thought about it, but I don't think I've put it into words as elegantly as you did where. Right. You're right. These videos that we have, we don't know these people. We just see we just see the violence. Right. And that's still that's still shocking. That still hurts. But it's not the same as knowing someone and losing them. Right. right? I also think it's it's sort of like a it's a very profound movement that you have that I'm pretty sure. Right. It's Jaquan who ends up saving the life of the baby. Right. From choking. Or no, it might be Rita trying to remember. No, you know Um, what? Actually, it is. And I hope it comes across. But it's everybody, everybody, you know, like everybody's in that room. Yeah. Everyone has a role pretty much, you know, Um, Jaquan and Peter have the biggest role in saving the baby, but they're all in that role. Mm. And I'm trying to get the point across is that to save a child or save black boys is really what I'm trying to say. To save black boys, it's going to take all of our efforts, Mm. you know, and I think we saw that with uh, George Floyd, the response with George Floyd, everybody of every hue, nationality, were in those streets during those protests. You know, I left my house one morning to go for my bike ride, which I did. And there were a white couple on the street corner with Black Lives Matter, you know? And like, that's that's what it's gonna take. It's gonna take everybody to uh to change this. And so that that's what that moment was for me. You know, everybody was in that room. Mm-hmm. And I think it's even it's more profound too that I think it's all it's all done in VO too. So there's a sense of distance. I'm not sure I'm not sure how to describe it. There was something about it when I was reading it where it felt I'm not sure. There's something about it. The fact that the fact that it's not visible on stage, the fact that it's a little bit like a uh, Greek tragedy that way, right? Where you it's it's separated, right? And the audience isn't allowed in. I'm not sure what is happening there, but I think that I think there's something special about that. And I think that's cool. It might have been for you. It might have just been a functional aspect, right? We can't uh, we don't want to, like, put another set piece of the baby's room in there. But um, or even right? It's all through the baby monitor, right? And that can even be a beautiful sort of theatrical moment. Right, right. And I, I thought it was more powerful not to see 
the characters and just to hear those voices. Like you said, it's all voiceover just to hear those voices. It's, it's like, I don't, I, I don't want to be crazy, but like, like heavenly, you know, it's like these voices from heaven, you know, like saving this child. And did you, so as those events start to unfold, right? I like white one, when the gun goes off, I sort of started to pick up the pieces. Like, did you want the audience to start to kind of see the slow motion car crash happen for the end? Like, or is that, do you want them to be sort of uh, shocked and surprised by it? Oh no, I, I want them to really know what's going to happen mm-hmm. because for me, um, and actually it's, it's, um, it's interesting actually, because some people don't have that experience, so they don't know what's going to happen. But like for me, as soon as those blue lights go on in the mm-hmm. living room and we know a cop is going to show up, for me and my experience in life, I kind of know what's going to happen. I I feel that dread already. But if someone has grown up without that experience, they probably are surprised by what happens. Mm-hmm. So it's it's it'll be interesting to you know to survey an audience <laughs> to see like you know did you did you know that was going to happen? So would you then like with that discussion of the ending altogether? Would you characterize the ending as hopeful or because I think I think that's kind of also a primary question to leave the audience with? Like, is there is there hope at the end? <laughs> So for me, the the there there isn't hope at the end, mm-hmm. you know. And I know that sounds so tragic and sad, but even even I say, you know, they're talking about the Prairie French Orchid, you know. And then Elijah says the Prairie French Orchid it doesn't come back in the spring; it dies too, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I wanted the end to not have that hope feeling. I wanted the audience to be left feeling this hopelessness, but I also wanted this transition that Jaquan is going to have to at least be um, less painful because when Elijah comes to show him the way, I'm hoping like, you know, in, in my mind, when these men are murdered, I, I hope that their journey to the other side is not alone. I hope there's someone to guide them. I hope mm-hmm. I hope there's at least someone there to say it's okay. You're going to be okay. I got you. I'm going to show you what to do. You know, so that's the most hope I have in the play as far as, you know, you know, trying to solve this situation. I I wanted to show the hopelessness of it because right now I feel hopelessness. But I did not want Jaquan to transition to the other world, you know, alone. Uh, I think that's what I I think that's what I was starting to pick up on towards the end is it doesn't feel like it it doesn't give us a solution. Right. That's not what your play is about. Right. Right. I think what you're doing and I think what we've already talked about is you are saying this is the moment. Right. This is now. And this is where we're leaving off is right now. Right. So you're presenting the audience with the problem. You're giving them a question and you're asking them to think about it and answer it themselves is, is sort of what I'm what I got from it, right? Is it, is I think sort of the question I had about hope was it sort of a real question and a not real question at the same time. Cause I feel like you're right. It's not there necessarily for the audience, but it does 
bring it to the forefront of our minds again, right? It makes us think about it and forces us in there. Right. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Was there any part in the play that you wrote in, but then you ended up taking away later that you had to for a reason? Yes. My favorite part that I wrote that I cut is um, Rita is the mother of a 12-year-old boy who was killed by the police. And she's in deep grief. She's still in deep grief. And Molly has invited her to this party to meet Jaquan, to meet the uh, Black Lives Matter activists. But um, I had written, Rita comes in, Elijah is actually physically with her. Her son is physically by her side. And I wanted, that's how heavy her grief was. And I wanted to show her grief is so heavy that her child is right by her side Everywhere she moves in the play, he's right there. You know, that grief is just constant. And I wanted the audience to, to see that grief. And I, I thought I thought it was just a wonderful piece of theater. But then, again, when the play wasn't getting produced, I was trying to figure out, okay, well, maybe they don't want to pay for a child actor. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I don't know what it was. So I, I decided to let that that go. Do you so would you envision right if they if if someone came to you and said we can produce your play there's no limitations on it would you put that back in I probably would not I kind of like the play now where Elijah comes at the very end and he's only there for Jaquan he's only there for Jaquan mm-hmm. it's yeah. it's it's sort of a it's sort of <laughs> like right that is and that's a pretty it's, I don't want to say common, but it is a right. There's a theatrical tradition for it. Like I'm thinking of like um, Philadelphia, here I come or other place where there's a character that's sort of with the character that the other ones can't see. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, how did you end up with the place title? I know it's, it's explicitly spoken, but what uh, what do you think it's supposed to represent about the play? Wow, that's that's an interesting question because like like I know where it came from just because like, just like you said it's 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 spoken by a character and I didn't have a title for the play at all and it wasn't until that came out of the character's mouth that I said oh that's the title that's it but I think the whole evening we are talking about saving things you know those are the three things that keep coming up you know like animals polar bears the prairie fringe orchid black boys so that's that that's repeated so much about saving those things that it just made sense that that was going to be the title and it's even it's it's a wonderful title because it it immediately excites me because it's it's like right you have things that don't uh one thing one of these things (laughs) doesn't really fit with the others (laughs) uh and it also i like that it doesn't it tells you a lot, but it doesn't tell you anything about the play, uh, right? It doesn't it doesn't set up expectations for you going in. Um, and so I think with a title like that, it allows your audience to come in more open anyways. Right. Ab- absolutely. Titles and uh, synopsis are my worst things. You know, like, yeah, let me sit down. I'll write 94 pages. But you want me to write a title? You know, you want me to write a synopsis? I I feel that uh, I really I write I hate writing synopses. I really <laughs> I'm just like what like I don't know. Just read it. Yeah, exactly. That is it. We're we're in agreement. <laughs> just read the play. The play is the synopsis. The play. 
Well, because I either write it way too short or way too long. I'm so bad at getting the middle part because I either go, okay, this is the general right uh, process about this. Like this is the basic thing that happens in the story, or I want to include all the cool details right, yeah. that are in there. Yeah. And that, and you, if you do all that, you might as well just read the play. <laughs> <laughs> sort of going back to talking about you, um, where do you find your inspiration for writing from? Not necessarily just for this, uh, but just in general, like are there playwrights or other artists or writers that uh, inspire you to write? Oh, you know, um, I love people who tell stories. Again, storytelling is just a must for me. And I love people who tell hard stories with humor. Mm -hmm. You know, if you make me laugh and then teach me something as well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all in you, you got me. So, and my life is not, you know, playwright heavy. You know, I love, I love everybody. You know, I love August Wilson. I love John Irving, the novelist. Um, Mel Brooks is my biggest hero. My God, <laughs> the, 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 the things he tackles mm -hmm. and with humor, it's like, you know, Blazing Saddles is one of my favorite movies in the world. You know, and I'm so, oh, my God, they haven't tried to do a musical of that yet, have they? I hope not. <laughs> well, that would either at this point, that would either be the best idea ever or the worst <laughs> idea ever. Because it, it would I, I was ta I think I was talking about that with uh, my wife because she was um, she was saying because she likes Mel Brooks. She also grew up watching Blazing Saddles. And she I was like, man, it's surprising they haven't made a musical about it. And then at the same time, I was like, oh, no, that's not as surprising at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially but, um, in today's climate. Exactly. But I don't know. I think, I don't know if we still need that in today's climate. You know, like that, I think that's one of the things about polar bears is like, I often wonder, again, trying to get this produced, if, if, if that's the reason why we haven't gotten it produced yet. It's because like, there's some stuff that is being said and we can't act like these things aren't being said. You know, mm. they, you know, we, we are not living in utopia yet. You know, we still have a lot of challenges. So just because we don't talk about it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So I'm still, I'm still for blazing saddles. I'm still for <laughs> all in the family, you know, people still have these thoughts and, I think we need to address them. And I think a great way to address them is to expose them and tell stories and, you know, show people actually having conversations based on what they think. I think there was a, there was a big, there's kind of a, a I don't want to say a big discussion, but there's a discussion happening around, and I saw it primarily around um, uh, sort of anti-Semitism and things like that. But I think you can apply it to, everything else that says do we stop people from saying those things or do we let them say them and then talk like do we just expose it right do we say no let's let's put these things out in the open and air it out so that we can all talk about it or do we want to um not let people say it because it's hurtful but it was it's sort of that discussion where if we keep on censoring everybody we keep on saying that every or not that I like, right. Not that people should be allowed to say whatever they want, but it's like, if we keep on uh, hiding the language that people are actually using, we never get a chance to talk about it. 
right? Yeah, I, I totally agree. It, it Just because it, it's still there. It's there and it's just hidden. That's all it is. You know, it's like, um, uh, I remember when um, the space shuttle blew up and that was horrific and it was sad and it was tragic for the families and even tragic for people who witnessed it. But at the time, MTV changed their opening because their opening used to be um, uh, like a, a space shuttle landing on the moon or something like that. It wasn't exactly the space shuttle, but it was uh, some some kind of rocket landing on the moon. But to to be more considerate of the families that have lost, you know, relatives in this explosion, they stopped showing that opening. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that doesn't change the pain you know it's uh, yeah i i don't know it's it's something i think about a lot where the it's like you could show looney tunes to someone and if that person lost their father to having an anvil dropped on his head they would they would be triggered by it and be hurt by it right like (laughs) so yeah it's and that's like an extreme example it doesn't like make sense at the same time it's like well it also like we should be taking care of each other and it shouldn't necessarily like it's not that we're we shouldn't be allowed to talk about things or question things. It's that we should be there for each other when we are experiencing this together. Right. And we should know our own limits and know each other's limits and things like that. I agree. Yes. Yes. That's well said. Is yeah. there and I know you said you're not necessarily like a like a playwright heavy playwright right you're not like reading but you're experiencing that elsewhere um you're getting artistic inspiration from other sources uh is there uh maybe like a theatrical moment or a a moment from another piece of art or media that you saw that you remember vividly mm, wow um you know what it's it's funny um i don't remember the moment vividly. I just remember the emotion. <laughs> and it was the first time, it was our um, ninth grade class, English class. We went to a Broadway show. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I had ever been on Broadway. It was the first time I had ever sat in a red velvet chair. And the lights went down and the stage lit up. And it was just the most powerful moment for me. It was, I I don't even remember what was on stage, but I just remember that emotion that filled me. It felt so good being in that darkness and then the lights coming up on stage. Oh my God. Yes. And I don't know why I didn't become a playwright after that. It took me (laughs) at least another 15 years to become a playwright. That that is a, that's the like most magical space I think. <laughs> yeah, is, is that transitionary moment? It's such like a liminal moment, followed by either something grand or something subdued. Doesn't matter like how you. Well, I mean, it does matter how you open your play, but just that moment is always. There's like a collective breath, right? And then we move into it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I I love being in a dark theater. Love it. Love it. Uh, I've sort of started looking for ooh moments. So I've been <laughs> thinking about that a lot. So I, I like, I think theater, right, should make me go ooh, right? Mm. And that can happen right through a technical element. It can happen through dialogue or things like that. Um, did you have a moment in 
polar bears that you thought was an ooh moment, if you sort of get what I'm saying? I, I have, <laughs> I don't know if I have that moment in mind. I don't know if I can find that moment. I do have a moment that I love. <laughs> <laughs> because in the play, you know, there's that, you know, in the earlier part, they talk about Peter and Molly's house smelling like pee because they don't flush <laughs> pee. They don't flush urine. They let it sit. But um, my one of my favorite parts is like, you know, they've been, their 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 guests have arrived. They've been drinking. They've been in this apartment for at least 35 minutes. And then it's quiet. There's been just some conflict that just shuts everybody up. And then out of nowhere, Shamika says, does your housekeeper know your house smells like pee? You know, that's that's <laughs> one of my favorite moments. It's just I think I think that I think that could qualify as an ooh moment. Is I think ooh, the, okay. I think I think the thing is with ooh moments is that uh it is the playwright can sort of set up the tea but the the director has to take the swing right so yeah, if it's yeah. if it's executed poorly anything can fall flat right yeah yeah uh but the playwright can give gifts right and i think i think you've given a lot of gifts in this play um i think like right i think that moment is really good i think uh even just the ending is like kind of a nice big ooh moment mm. uh but I, I'm sort of on the look for it. And I'm I, I'm also sort of at a point where I'm wondering how much control the playwright does have over moments like that. Because I think also a good director can take and create an ooh moment out of something the playwright didn't expect to sort of make while they were writing it. So yeah. who knows? And the other great part is, is that the audience will have their own ooh moment. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, like when we've had talkbacks, it really often stuns me what resonates with an audience that I didn't think was going to resonate. It's like you found something profound in that small moment. But that's that's the thing I love about theater is like if you have an audience of 200, 250 people, they have their own stuff that they brought into the theater with them. So no one's going to have the same response. No one's going to have that same ooh moment. you know. And it's cool to like when you are given that, it's 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 cool. Like talkbacks for me, I don't like to talk. I want the audience to talk, you know, because they've they've just experienced something. I want to know what they've experienced. That's that's the that's the the ultimate talkback for me. Well, and it's sort of like with talkbacks, it's like you don't you don't really want to know what I was trying to give you. You know, like yes. I gave it to you, right? I right, don't need to right. tell you what I was trying to give you. You received right. it. I want to know what you received because that's not always the same as my intentions when writing daniel i think we were separated at birth <laughs> that is exactly what i feel uh well on on that note uh <laughs> uh sort of winding it down you said you're based right now in california um are you sort of doing any work right now that people should know about you know what um there's um a couple of things like i told you idle is the the best thing for me. So I'm idle right now. But there's something that I'm working on that's just working in my head about um it's loosely based on Jay-Z, you know. Uh I, I find it fascinating that um he he's 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 Jay-Z. Mm -hmm. You know, he's Jay-Z. But the thing that I find interesting about his backstory is that one at some period in his life, he sold drugs on a corner. 
And I want to know what happened to the people that he sold drugs to. What, oh, wow. What, what is their life? You know, like Jay-Z has this life, but there's someone out there that is hooked on drugs because he sold them drugs. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to know what that story is. And so it's like that, a, yeah, that's it's what's like, in my mind. That That is... <laughs> that's like immediately just a very like theatrical idea uh right where like and that's also i i like theater about uh characters that you don't think about because you're like who is that person we yeah. don't know he raps about it right he, he yeah. raps you know that that person must have existed but we don't ever hear anything from them right wow and, and yeah cool. and yeah yeah so that's that's what's playing in the idle side of my head <laughs> In in Vincent's idol cinema, yeah, in his brain, <laughs> uh, is if people are looking for your work, right? So on the off chance a producer picks up this podcast and says, "Oh my God, I need to find his work and produce it right now," where can they find it? Sure, um, my the go to place is a uh, new play exchange. I'm there, and also uh, I have some stuff on my website, vtdisme.com. Perfect. Well, uh. Thank you so much, Vincent. This has been wonderful. You're amazing. Uh, and I really appreciate you taking the time to just talk with me about your play. It's a really, really amazing play. You are welcome. And I appreciate uh, the time. Anytime a playwright is given some exposure, you, you really, <laughs> you just don't know. You know, there's a lot of us out there, a lot of us trying to find a place for our work. And mm-hmm. Thank you for this gift, you know, just talking to you and having this on the internet is beautiful. I appreciate it. Well, that's the goal is uh, first and foremost, right? It's for playwrights uh, to listen and maybe get inspired from other people. But if it does lead to someone who can make some magic (laughs) happen, producing a great play, I would love to see it. So um, I'm really happy that I get to provide it. So thanks again, Vincent. Uh, This has been wonderful and Hopefully your play gets produced sometime. You're welcome. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you all so much for tuning in and listening to this episode. All our music was written, performed, and recorded by Devin Wessels, and our graphic design is done by Lucas Minarchik. Join us next time when we talk to another great playwright about another great play. And until then, you can do us a huge favor by leaving a review, subscribing to the podcast, and sharing it with a friend. We'll see you next time.